Good morning, and you can open up your Bibles to the Gospel of John this morning, John chapter 7. Lord willing, we're going to look at the first 24 verses, and uh, it's a little bit longer, and so we won't take uh, the time to read them up front, but we will read them together uh, as we walk through the text this morning. But before we do our study, let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time. Father, we do thank you for another Sunday to come before you, that we are here to worship you, or whatever we gain insight from your word, uh, blessings from just interactions with your people, and we know that all those things that are good, they come from you. Lord, even as we reflect on another year, we are so thankful for your kindness to each one of us and to this church, to our families, and all the various ways, Lord, which you continue to grow and strengthen, Lord, even maturing us. Sometimes when even maturity is difficult or painful, we know that all things work together for good for those who love you. We just ask now that as we come to your word, Lord, give us spiritual eyes to see, Lord, these deep truths of which we will see this morning. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. Well, I can remember vividly where I was, a junior in English class in high school. And I had a professor, a teacher at a Christian school who at the time asked what I thought was the deepest, most profound question I'd ever heard. Simply put on the board, what is the chief end of man? And I didn't have an answer. And I thought, I probably should have an answer to what my chief end, what my main purpose in life is, and I did not. And he was the kind of teacher, which was a good teacher, but annoyed me, and that he never gave answers. You know, he'd leave you and go, all right, now leave. You're going, whoa, 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 whoa. If you have an answer to that question, I want the answer, but he never gave it, and just said, go home and figure it out. So I can even remember sitting in bed, thinking about that question, kind of rolling it in my mind, what is the chief end of man? And I have a context for that. Later I learned that's a pretty old question phrased by the Westminster Confession. And he did later, another, the next day, give the answer, which is the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And then I remember rolling that around in my head. What does it mean to glorify God? And then maybe even more profound, what does it mean to enjoy him? And how are those things mutual? It's all about him and all about glorifying him. How in which way does it equal my joy? Deep things. Well, as you come to John 7, I think even as we come to the really end of this calendar year, it's a very appropriate passage where a lot of these kind of deep questions you might have asked or seen throughout the scriptures... Jesus ties them together in his teaching in the temple and John presents them through the inspiration of the Spirit in this way as he presents Christ as the Son of God. We've already kind of seen allusions to regeneration, that you need a new heart, John chapter 3. You kind of go back, you think of the Old Testament, you think of stories like David. What was David? He was a man after God's own heart. He had a desire that was different and you think of classic kind of phrases that we even maybe use in our culture that come from the Bible that you don't want to judge on appearance, but you should judge on what's here, what's inward. 
but yet we are very physical. And we've seen that also through John. He's got to keep tying these things together where they keep misunderstanding his teachings. He must be born again. Well, how in the world do I get back in mom's womb? Or you need living water. And she's thinking, you don't have a bucket. And the well is deep. How do you go and get this water? And then how could you have a drink in which was so satisfying and so perpetual that you would never thirst again? And of course, Jesus is teaching these spiritual lessons throughout John, pointing you back to himself as the ultimate. And while we see him and understand him and who he is, he then, of course, deflects to the Father because in his humanity, he is all about doing the Father's will while still yet being fully God, fully divine in every single way. But New Year's comes, we make goals, we make resolutions, and if they don't equal as a Christian the chief end of glorifying God, then our goals are wrong and need to be reoriented. And you're going to see Christ being the perfect man how he is completely oriented around giving God the glory with his life in the way he goes about his ministry, even in something as simple as timing. We're going to see that this morning. Well, if you look at John chapter 7 there, the, the setting really is all of John, but even more immediate, chapter 5 and chapter 6. The healing of the paralytic man in chapter 5 is going to come back. So if you weren't here for that, you kind of look back and you see, okay, this issue of why do they want to kill Jesus? So chapter 7, verse 1, after these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. That sets us back up to chapter 5, which was he healed this man on the Sabbath. And if you go back to 5, verse 18, it says this reason... Therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, that is Jesus, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So twofold, but they kind of relate to one another. They're mad. He's healing on this Sabbath. They're saying you're breaking the law, which Jesus is not um, even, I think, more going to explain how he's not breaking the law here, but also that he ultimately is saying, I have this right because I'm not just a man. He's claiming equality with the Father. And so they're about finding ways now to kill him. So he can't walk with them. And so this period, chapter 5, you could say to chapter 7, uh, months have gone by and another feast. So chapter 5 begins with a feast, which isn't identified in chapter 5, but 7 here, the feast is identified, which is six months before Passover when Christ is going to be killed. So you're doing ministry in Galilee and the end of chapter 6, the other part of this context was 6 verse 66, just a few verses before our verses this morning. It says, as a result of his teaching, his hard sayings, which he taught both, remember his, the Jews, the crowds, and the, the disciples, it says, verse 66, many of his disciples went away and were not walking with him any more. Even so much so that Jesus looks to the 12 and says, are you also going to leave? To which Peter says, and we as the church say with them, to whom shall we go? For you have the words of eternal life. They've come to understand who he is to some degree, maybe not in the fullest sense as they'll see him lifted up on the cross, but they are staying with him. And so within that, it makes more sense here when we're introduced to the family of Jesus. 
And I find this fascinating because you have an issue of belief in John. You definitely have an issue of belief in chapter 6, and they don't believe. And he's going to say, you don't believe because the Father isn't drawing you, which is, that's a deep thought, which is going to be further filled out here in chapter 7. But he's going to address that the belief of the brothers here of Jesus is not a saving belief, but they do believe in something, but it's the same something the crowds believed in. So let's dive here into chapter 7, these first 24 verses, and really these first nine verses, we're going to see some lessons. And I'm just going to look at them as spiritual lessons. And I say spiritual because I want to emphasize not so much that um, they have no correspondence to reality or life, because they do, but we're seeing past the physical, because that's a huge part of what's going on here in John and especially in chapter 7, to the spiritual truths. So three spiritual lessons from John chapter 7. And this is going to be a big issue in the life of Christ, but even an implication for our lives in understanding this truth, that what we perceive is God's timing is not always God's timing. And if we haven't learned that lesson as a Christian, we definitely will learn it throughout the longer that we walk with him. So number one, God's timing is not our timing. And in the context of this narrative, what you're going to see is the brothers want Jesus to do something and he's saying no. What appears to make the most sense, humanly speaking, is not what God's plan is. And so he's not going to come down to Judea, it says at this point, because it's not safe for him and his time has not yet come, as we'll see. But it tells us in verse two, the feast of the Jews, the Feast of Booths, or Tabernacle, was near. And he knows that, and he knows that they're looking for an opportunity to kill him. And the minute he gets into Jerusalem, he knows that's what's going to happen. And therefore, he's going to go, but he's going to go in his own way, in his own timing. That is the Father's perfect timing. Maybe just a little bit of background for the Feast of Tabernacles. You think of, it's a celebration. It's a seven-day feast with this eighth day that where they uh, celebrate a massive feast at the end. They're commanded in Deuteronomy 16, wherever the Lord says, which is going to be Jerusalem, they go up there to celebrate together. It's five days after the Day of Atonement at the time of the fall harvest, having just been completed. And they're celebrating God's provision as they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. It's one of the three feasts everyone goes up to. So it's actually an interesting dynamic here because if you were a male Jew— it was an issue of obedience. You're commanded to go up to Jerusalem. Of course, Jesus is going to be the perfect human, the perfect Jew. But he's going to go up in his own time that matches with the Father's timing. Look at verse 3. And what we see here is the unbelief of the brothers. But again, note what they believe and what they do not believe. Because it says, verse 3, Therefore his brothers said to him, Leave here. Go into Judea, so that your disciples also may see your works, which you are doing. Make a very common sense statement, verse 4. No one, for no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself publicly to the world. Now you take this out of a context of the Gospel of John, and it makes complete human sense. They're thinking, if you want to grow your ministry, you make it public 
You go where the crowds are. You go to where the, the city is, the influence is, which is Jerusalem, not little old Galilee. You don't go out into the small towns. You go where the kind of all of the center of civil, civilization is. And they believe in this at least, right? They seem to say, we've seen your works. We believe in those works. Why don't you go show them those works and then they will believe. I imagine there's even a moment here where it reflects on the family poorly to which they're saying, hey, if you're saying you are the Messiah, then go prove it. Don't cause shame on the family or even for your own sake, do this. It makes no sense for you to continue to hide away in private. Go and make things public. But it says in verse 5, for not even his brothers were believing in him. But we learned in chapter 6, right? That believing in Jesus as a miracle worker is not the same as trusting in him as Savior. They still don't truly believe. And that's a massive issue in John because belief is how you get eternal life. And if they don't believe... And that would probably, you think, more specific to John, talking about not only just the gospel, the good news of Christ, but they chiefly do not believe he is the son of God yet in the right way. And they want more evidence, no different than the crowds. Amazing to me because these brothers include two epistle writers, both Jude and James are part of this. And here they still don't believe They only believe in the same way the crowds which walked away in six, they wanted to see the miracles, the works. But you have to see through those works and even to a sense and a degree through the words to the person of Christ, that he is the son of God and they can't see past the physical to the spiritual truth of who Christ is. And so they want him to go up and Jesus' response as he says to them, verse six, my time is not yet here but your time is always here. I think that's one of those statements which probably to them has kind of a, a near-term meaning and probably Jesus, and we read and understand not only just how he, he uses this word throughout the gospel, his time, it's, it's distinctive, but maybe clarifying and later, which we won't get to this morning in verse 30, that they're seeking to seize him, yet no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. On the surface, it simply means, hey, I'm not ready to go to Jerusalem. You can go whenever you want because they're not trying to kill you. But beyond that, just as it says in verse 30, his hour, talking of his time to be lifted up on the cross, is not yet here. He knows if he goes, and they would go in massive caravans to Jerusalem, People are going to be looking, which was what we see next here in chapter 7. They're going to want to, again, celebrate him if he do his, his works. They, they want to make him king, but not savior. They want him to be the king who will conquer Rome. There's this political kind of reality. They want to come true now, but that's not God's plan. That isn't what he's ready for, and they're going to try to arrest him, and it's not God's timing. So he's saying, Not my timing. You can go up whenever, which, by the way, is quite the insult, really. Saying, I have a purpose that is higher than yours. But mainly, not only can you go up anytime you want, but he's saying you can go up anytime, Jerusalem, that you want because they will love you because you are like them. 
And he says, verse 7, which way? Because you're like the world, which is typically a very negative context, uh, context uh, word used throughout the gospel of John. He's saying the world, which deeds are evil. He's saying the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I bear witness about it, that its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves. I am not yet going up to this feast because my time has not yet been fulfilled. Having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. So on the way out, he explains to them, listen, there, there's something going on here that is much larger. You can go up whenever because they are not going to be offended by you. But my very presence, my teaching stands in that they do not see their Messiah. They do not embrace. They do not believe. And as we've seen just from chapter 5, which is going to come up again, when they find that Jesus isn't doing what they want, they're going to try to seize him and kill him because they do not believe. The crowds, the brothers, this is also partially where this is going to go in verse 24, all are judging on an outward appearance. They're saying, if we can't see it, then we're not going to believe. You go faith, the element of faith, believing in something that is unseen, trusting. That goes back to God's timing is not our timing. His way is not always our way. And you could even say it's probably usually not our way. We're called to live not by sight, but by faith. The assurance of things, as Hebrews says, hope for the conviction of things not seen. A reminder, even just thinking of Isaiah 55, and in this context, saying, my thoughts, Yahweh says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares Yahweh. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways than your ways, my thoughts than your thoughts. There's a way in which the one, and we'll see that this is all going to circle around the glory of God and his purposes and his glory, the way that we live, those who want to seek God's glory as believers are going to live differently, make decisions differently. They're going to understand that not everything goes according to our plan and that's okay. You can hold things loosely and make plans, but the Lord will be the one who directs your steps, which is why I think James chapter 4, in a context of James, talking of how do we live mature Christian lives. Listen, the way we should do and the way we should live is we can make plans, but we trust the Lord. And if the Lord wills. And so James says, chapter 4, verse 13, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. God's timing is not our timing. You don't want to go into another year expecting everything to work the way you want because the world isn't revolving around us. We saw that with John the Baptist and Jesus. We are not the son the world does not revolve around us. It revolves around God and his glory and his timing and his purposes. And the better I think we grasp that understanding, the more we understand our role within that. Does it make us feel small, like someone's staring out into the universe? Absolutely. But yet we understand then 
that universe, the one who made it, think of just the last week of Christmas, be put on flesh and dwelt among us. Died for us, and all of a sudden you go, wow, we have value not because of who we are, but because of what he has done for us, that he has made us and moved to trust him in all things. And really, I'd say, in many ways, Jesus explains, well, how do you do this? How do you go about living this kind of life that trusts the Lord's timing, even when it's not our way? Because you think of this time of year with the guys watching, you know, bowl games and sports and things, and everyone's jumping into the portal if you follow all those things. And a lot of times you hear phrases, and I'm a pastor, so, you know, Christian, I kind of hear the lingo that, you know, it's God's timing and it's God's way and those things. And the issue there is, I don't know what they usually are trying to say is, this thing didn't happen for me yet, but it's going to happen, and I'm going to get glory and praise. And of course, you go, biblically, that's completely backwards. The whole intent of our lives has to be glorifying the Lord, not simply waiting for the next blessing to come or the next thing or the next big paycheck. This isn't about us. This is about glorifying the Lord. But how do we go about doing that? How do we go about having that kind of desire, or as the phrase here will be, that kind of will? And I would say this is one of those deep thoughts, one of those profound things that I don't know if I saw. I know I didn't see until looking at John chapter 7, but this truth, which is pulled directly out of verse 17, but I think is going to point to how you can go about glorifying the Lord this deep truth that the right willing, that is the desire, is the foundation of right knowing, which is very similar to John chapter 3, and it takes us out of the driver's seat. If anyone is willing to do his will, that is God's will, he will know about the teaching, whether it is of God or I speak from myself. It's an issue of desire, of willing. So, yeah, God timing, God's timing is not our timing, but also right willing is the foundation of right knowing. Look at verse 10. We're going to see the context of this. How does, he, how does Jesus show us how to trust the Lord and seek his glory first? He demonstrates it by coming up to the feast on his timing, on the Father's timing. He's obedient to Deuteronomy 16. He's there. He just doesn't go up with the caravan. He doesn't go up where everything is public. And we're going to see, because if he would have... They would have found him, looked for him, and tried to celebrate him. It would have caused such a ruckus. It would have got him, particularly, I think, arrested before the proper time, which was going to be Passover six months later. So in verse 10, you see the brothers, they go up. They had gone up to the feast. And then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as in secret. So he goes up, but he doesn't go up the way they wanted, which was to go up kind of in a kingly way to make it a spectacle. No, he goes up in secret. And so the Jews were seeking him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Some were saying, he is a good man. Others were saying, no. On the contrary, he leads the crowd astray. Yet no one was speaking openly about him for the fear of the Jews. Context. No internet, no phones, no TV, no radio. Where do you get your news? Three times a year, you go up to Jerusalem, you get your news. Last time Jesus was here, he made a pretty big splash. He healed someone who was a paralytic for 38 years. They want to know, where is this man? 
We heard his teaching last time we were here, and then we went home, and now they're looking, where is he? And they can't find him. And you kind of see there's two strains of thought here. They're going, he's a good man. Others maybe saying, no, he's leading people astray. There, there's kind of these strains of thought you're going to see. They're going to even look to him and eventually kind of argue that when he says they're trying to kill me, that this person has a demon. So they're, they're torn over who he is because I think they know he has to be something. He's not nothing. They're just trying to figure out what the something is. But no one's speaking openly their thoughts because they're afraid of the Jews. And of course, you're going, well, what does this phrase mean within the context of Jerusalem where they're all there, the Jews, to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles? It'd be those contrary, the way it's used in John. Probably the, the leadership, the Jewish leadership that is against Jesus, that is trying to take him and seize him and kill him. But Jesus goes in, and he goes in, verse 14, in an un suspecting way, not the way I guarantee you, you or I would go in. If I had the power to do miracles or to prove my point or to say I am right and let me show you how, I would do it. He doesn't do it though. He goes in and he teaches. He says something about the nature of his miracle ministry it was to just simply validate his claims of truth, but it really is his communicating the shell, you could say, is the miracle, and you got to see through the miracle to understand the truth, which here he is teaching. And so in verse 14, when it was now the middle of the feast, so a couple days in, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. He knows that the timing is such where everything will work out according to God's plan and begins to teach. And the Jews then were marveling, saying, how has this man become learned, not having been educated? Note again the issue, the conversation, the, the rumor mill. What does it revolve around? All that is physical. Where he's from. Do we not know that he's the son of Joseph and Mary? Do we not know where he's from? Which they're actually wrong here in this chapter because they're one of the accusations against him is we know the Messiah comes from Bethlehem and he's from Galilee which he actually was born in Bethlehem. Everything revolves around the outward appearance. They say he doesn't look the way we think he should look. He doesn't have the education for the way he is speaking. How's this man become learned, not having been educated? That's what they're marveling at. How is he able to teach in such a way? Because you would expect someone to go and learn from other rabbis and to quote other rabbis, yet he's speaking with a different kind of authority. Even when they go and they're upset with him towards the end and saying, verse 46, they're supposed to go arrest them, these officers, and the officers respond to the Pharisees, this in 46, never has a man spoken like this. With the authority he doesn't need to quote the way they have quoted. He knows with absolute conviction and authority because he's teaching what his father has taught him because he's very God himself. And so they begin marveling at all of these things and Jesus gives them this answer in verse 16. He says, my teaching is not mine, but from him who sent me. Where you come to the Gospel of John and John could give us anything from this sermon, anything from the teaching in the temple. John is there. He's one of the 12. And he gives you this, which is a reminder of what Jesus is about. He doesn't even give you so much the content as to say, 
the teaching, whatever the content was he's teaching on in the temple on that day, he's saying, he's just saying, where is it from? What is the source? And he's saying the source isn't rabbinical tradition. The source is from the one who sent me. It goes back to John chapter 1. The one who sent him, he came from heaven. He came from above, which of course we need the one who has come from above if we are to be saved. He roots it back into deflecting. If you want to be amazed at my teaching, be amazed with God. Don't be amazed with me. Now you'll see other times where Jesus, of course, is accepting worship because he has come to be honored in worship. Even you remember back to the judgment, chapter five, he's been given judgment from the Father so that he might be honored. Study Revelation, you see him honored and glorified and worshiped as the Lamb. But here in his incarnation at this moment, he's showing you what it is to be the perfect man who is always about his Father, always about God's will, the way that we as believers should be as well. Every sermon should be some degree me saying, this is not me. This is what God's word says. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. He's deflecting as the perfect man saying, this authority comes from the one who has sent me. And then he, what he says is this deep thought, which comes back to the right willing is the foundation of the right knowing. This deep thought, verse 17, that if anyone is willing to do his will, so desire, you have the right motivation, the right desire, the right will to do his will, that is to be obedient to him, he will know about the teaching, whether it is of God or I speak from him myself. You look, John 3, really, you say, all six chapters of John start to come back to this issue of it is God who draws. It is God who regenerates. You must be born again. You need a new desire. And what he's saying in essence here is your problem, if you don't believe, is not one of evidence, but it's one of the heart, that you have not been given a new heart with new desires. They need a new nature. They need to be born again. So 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature, new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. That's new desires. And when you have a new desire, the spirit has regenerated the heart. He's saying, then you'll know what I say is true. And the one who is regenerated is going to believe. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know. Just way a deep thing that what God is doing that you begin to marvel at. The right willing is the foundation of right knowing. And that willing has to come from a new nature that comes from the Spirit. And specifically, what's that new nature? What is that desire? If you're a true believer and you've been born again, what do you want more than anything? He says, verse 18, he who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true and there is no unrighteousness in him. I'd argue verse 18 is saying the issue here is glory and you no longer, like I think the brothers wanted here, they wanted Jesus to seek his own glory. I think they probably wanted some self-glory in that as the brother of this miracle worker. He's saying, if you have the right willing and you understand 
the right knowing that Jesus is the Son of God, then your desire moves from people-pleasing, seeking personal glory, to seeking the glory of the one who sent him. That is the glory of God who is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. That is the mark of a true believer, that they seek the glory of God above their own glory, above their own desires. Maybe even most when it doesn't match up with what they personally want. As I said, as you think of a new year and you want certain things, it's the trust to say, but the Lord knows best even when I don't want this, but yet this has happened. You trust that it is his timing and it is perfect. And it comes from this motivation to say, what I'm chiefly concerned about is not getting what I want, but God receiving the most glory from everything that I do and everything that I am a part of. That is to say, it's not just about changing habits or patterns, but about changing your desires from the inside out, what you really, truly want, which is the Lord glorified in every situation. Think of, at least for me, most of my growing up in the church and you had the WWJD, what would Jesus do? And it's interesting to think about, you think about the incarnation, what would Jesus do? Well, Jesus is always going to glorify the Father. It's the simplest answer I can give. And to be conformed to the Son is to have that same desire. Romans 12, 2 says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may approve what the will of God is and what is good and pleasing and perfect. So the Spirit does. It renews our minds as we get into his word that we might have this desire to please him in every way. There should be a passion for his glory, not simply about our glory and our desires being met. And when you have that, now you have the heart that can serve the way Jesus served. And it's interesting. It doesn't start with action. This goes back to, well, what, do you, what do I do then? What are the works that I need to do that please God? That's the question of the crowd in chapter 6. And Jesus says, there is no work. In fact, let's look back there, chapter 6. What is the work there that they're wondering? And he's saying, the work is belief. In other words, it's not something you do. It's something you see and you believe within your heart and you trust, which is why it's by faith. It starts with a willing heart that we reflect Christ most when we desire God's glory above all else. It starts with internal willingness, which then, of course, is the foundation to knowing he is truly the son of God. And their issue here is they're not willing. We've seen that over and over again, the same term. They're unwilling to come to him in chapter six. What needs to change is the heart, the desires, the motivations. And so God's timing is not our timing. That's a pretty good lesson for life in general. Pretty profound that where does it start with, but it's the right willing, the right desires is what's going to root the foundation of all knowledge and truth. And he's going to illustrate this again in a similar way he's done so often in John, that you have to see and move past simply what is outward to what is inward. That is, we must see past the outward, the physical shell of things. One preacher put it this way. He said, we are shell gazers. All we see is the shell. When I look at you, I see the outward shell and not the eternal soul. I see someone who's a certain age or who's too young or who's too old. We make judgments based on that outward appearance. So you look at verse 19, what Jesus confirms to the crowd is they do not will what God wills. 
So he provides an evidence. He's saying, listen, you want to know that you don't desire what God desires? Well, let's look at verse 19. Let's look back to chapter 5. Let's look back to the last feast when I was here, where I healed a man, and it actually caused you to get angry. You have completely misunderstood God's desire, even God's law itself, which, of course, would cut to the heart of their issue because that's what they pride themselves on the most. And we know from the end of 7, this is mainly the Pharisees who would be the experts in the law that he is criticizing. And so he says, again, this is the example. How do I confirm? How do I tell you that you do not have God's will, that you don't will what God wills? Did I not, did not, verse 19, Moses give you the law? And yet none of you does the law. Why do you seek to kill me? Now you go, where's the evidence? Okay, he's not there yet, but he is saying, listen, you want to kill me. Is there anything about murder in Moses' law? Yes, there is. Thou shalt not murder. And he's saying, listen, if that's God's will described in these, this Mosaic law, you're not doing it. You desire to kill me. Of course, Jesus even explains in the Sermon on the Mount that is the issue, is hatred in the heart is just as guilty, at least before God, as murder itself. And the crowd answers, you have a demon. Who seeks to kill you? And perhaps there's some innocence to that. The crowd's thinking, they don't understand all that's going on in the Pharisees or even the human heart. They're thinking, we want you to be king. Which is still, they're different than the Pharisees, but they have still misunderstood what he is there for. They want him to come and take away other physical problems and defeat Roman occupation. And he's not there for that. He's there for a different mission to save a people for his namesake. And so they're thinking this guy has to be crazy. Why is he being paranoid? And Jesus answers it this way, giving the example. I did one work and you all marveled. I think probably as he's speaking to the crowd, this goes back not to the feeding of the 5,000 in Galilee, but probably back to the last work he did in Jerusalem, which is the healing of the paralytic man. For 30, he'd been there paralytic, you know, couldn't get in the pool for 38 years. He said, I just did that one thing. And you all marveled at it. And even you can say marvel here is not even really probably a statement of whether they think it's a good or a bad thing. They just, this is amazing. This man, uh, this, I can't believe this happened. We, we've seen this man every day for 38 years and here he is healed. But he says, this reason, Moses has given you circumcision, not because it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And on the Sabbath, you circumcise man. So what he's saying is, Moses has given you a law of circumcision. And he actually kind of goes back, and what he's saying is it goes back to not even Moses, because circumcision goes back to Abraham, the sign of the covenant. And then, so we have a sign of a covenant, and when the eighth day comes for that male child, you do a circumcision, and you don't care if that eighth day is on Saturday, Sabbath, or not. And you guys have always done that. Why? Because you understand that all those laws have a context and a purpose of the glory of God, and you want to be obedient to the covenant sign on the eighth day, even if it causes you, quote-unquote, to work. And that goes to their misunderstanding of really what the Sabbath was meant for. And so they're allowed to do circumcision. They're all okay doing the circumcision if it falls on the Sabbath, which means the issue here isn't actually healing on the Sabbath. 
And he says, verse 22, if a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses will not be broken. In other words, you're going to keep the law of Moses. You're going to keep this Abrahamic sign of the covenant by doing something, quote unquote, on the Sabbath. Are you angry with me? Because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath. It's masterful. He's just saying, look, I did a good thing. This man was healed. And yet you criticize me for doing the Father's work on the Sabbath when I have not only every right to, but he's even saying, I didn't break it. You don't break it by healing. You don't break it by doing a circumcision. So why are you mad with me? And they are mad with him because he's exposing their deeds as evil, as he said in earlier chapter 7. And he summarizes in verse 24 by saying, do not judge according to appearance, but judge which with righteous judgment. So the evidence Jesus gives, they can't see past this outward physical shell is they want to kill him because he's not who they think he should be, which I'd even say part of that is he's not the Messiah they want because he doesn't want to go about destroying, say, Roman rule in all of this way and setting up the kingdom immediately. He's not the Messiah they want, and so they're angry with him. They're simply, they can't see past who he is. He doesn't look the way they think he should look. Which also just does tell us, when people ask the question, what did Jesus look like? Well, he looks in a way where he's unassuming enough that he's not what they picture. I don't think David was ugly, because it goes on to say David was handsome, but he's not what Samuel expected. In 1 Samuel 16, it says, now it happened when they entered... This is Samuel. He's entering. He actually, this is interesting. The whole context here is he is um, basically moping over Saul. And God says, stop moping. I've moved past Saul and I have a new king and he's in Bethlehem and he's from a son of Jesse. And so he goes. And when he gets there and the town leaders meet him, he sees and he looks at Eliab and thought, surely that guy, look at him. The way he looks, his age, uh, whatever it is, his height, all those things, that's the guy, surely, the anointed of Yahweh is before him. But Yahweh said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For God sees not as a man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but Yahweh looks at the heart. This goes back to 24 and we want to judge with righteous judgment, not according to appearance. We have to start looking at the world differently and see beyond the physical shell of people and things and events and circumstances and go, what is God teaching? What is the spiritual lesson to be learned? We have to see past that outward shell. We obviously live in a culture with saturated with media and pictures and you think, man, I know that person seems like a nice person. And you have to ask the question, why do you think that? Have you ever met that person? Well, just they look like a nice person, right? Because we make a judgment based on appearance. And Jesus is saying, do not do that. And chiefly don't do that with himself is the immediate context. They're looking at Jesus and saying, you don't look the way we think you should look. And therefore we don't believe the words you are saying. They can't see past it through both his works, his words, or you could even say his lack of work to 
who he is in his person. We're gonna have to do those things to grow and understand what God is doing in the world. We have to see past that outward, that physical shell. But it kind of goes back to this issue of why we exist. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God, to enjoy him forever and to live a life in this way where we're focused on what God is doing. His timing, not our timing. His desires, not our desires. And we don't simply go, I see physical, I see outward, I, this is what I see, and make a judgment and not realize there's more going on. It's always more going on with a person, with an individual, with a circumstance, with an event, with a tragedy. There's always more going on and we need God to give us the spiritual eyes to see that we might look and be conformed to Christ and the way he sees what the Lord is doing, particularly in his ministry here, but not only in his ministry here, but then as he is crucified on a cross for us, as he's raised from the grave, and we know that he is still working in and through his church to do his ministry. So this New Year's, as you guys look at your own life and you look at your own goals, make sure that at the peak of those things, those things your desire, and it's the only way you can get to the James 4 attitude of if the Lord wills, because you understand that, yes, I like this, but I'd even want more the Lord to be glorified. So may all of those resolutions, if you make them or as you make them, be about glorifying the Lord the same way Christ here glorifies his Father and demonstrates that he has a true desire for his Father and we as believers, a true desire for worship for him. And we demonstrate that in the way we shape the way we live and the way we make choices and desire his glory above all else. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning. What a profound truth of Jesus expresses what it is to be the perfect man. The way in which Christ is perfect in every way in which we were not, that he is like a man in every way except for sin, as Hebrews says. That he's able to take the mission you have given him and even in his humanity, understand that there are things that are difficult but you have a greater purpose and that obedience is what you desire. Lord, even for us, we understand that you have given us as your church a mission, Lord, and that we would be faithful to it and part of that is having the spiritual eyes to see opportunities, divine appointments and ministry that we can have with other believers and with those who do not believe as we engage and we encounter them. Lord, help us have spiritual goals this year, not just things that are physical, but that our prayer life, that our thought life, and that those things we write out and desire would be spiritual in nature, all flowing from a heart's desire to glorify you and everything we do. We just ask this in your son's name. Amen.